0: The fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, homegrown in Hatfield, Massachusetts, and providing energy savings for their customers for over 10 years. Learn more at northeast-solar.com.
1: Welcome to The Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. It's Election Day. And we are strongly suggesting that you participate in our
2: civic duties. We're also going to be watching those civics unfold in real time with our live
1: election coverage this evening starting at 8. We'll be watching the results coming in with uh, Mayor LeChapelle of East Hampton and political commentator Ryan McCollum and just hoping for the best.
2: Later in the show, we'll have a rundown of the mayoral races with NEPM reporter Adam Frenier and... He'll give you a Cliff Notes version of the 14 candidates involved.
1: We'll also take you to the location of one of those races to see a circus sideshow-influenced exhibit of eccentricities and oddities at Berkshire Museum with curator Jesse Kowalski. But right
2: now, before we get stuck in the whirlwind drama of exit polls and fallout of bigger political machines, let's look at some community action.
1: Palante launched in 2015 with one full-time staff member and 15 student leaders as a collaboration through River Valley Consult- Counseling Center, Teen Clinic, and Holyoke High School in an effort to begin to change the policies you and are good, practices thank you. at the root of Holyoke Public Schools' legacy of school push-out. Yes. For nearly seven years, they were housed entirely within and through the Holyoke Public
2: Schools. But in March 2022, they opened a community-based location in Very downtown likely, Holyoke. Very likely, yes. I know June I have it
1: with me. I'll have to check the, the details just a changed its name oh, to oh, palante,
2: okay. transformative justice their team includes four palante alumni and 40 student leaders representing all different parts of holyoke
1: we're joined by caitlin cruz who is not only on staff but an alumni of the program so special insight and thank you for coming on the show with us
3: Ooh, this is so cool i'm so excited <laughs> this is so cool to watch live and to watch it happen
2: <laughs> we're glad to have you here Tell us what, if you don't speak Spanish, what Palante means.
3: Yeah, so Palante means moving forward. Um, And to us, we take that from the Young Lords um, based out of New York City. And really, we're we're youth-led. We really believe in the inherent power of young people. Um, So beyond just like empowering young people we believe that they have that power within already and we do that in many different ways and um it's really been a great opportunity to be part of this organization for such a long time um I've been part of the organization since 2017 and so this goes far back for me and it's a big part of my heart Uh, so yeah
1: what's felt different has anything felt different from when you were in a an actual like, student participant in the program to now when you're actually working with the program, bringing up and teaching more students to be a part of this practice?
3: Yeah. So Balante um, has gone through a lot of different phases, right? So when we were school-based, it was like a lot of our, um, our focus was on circle practice, Um, and circle practice is an indigenous practice that was outlawed until 1976 Um, and we use it to help us like facilitate healing and um, conflict in our community and resolving issues within um, our community and it just feels so different um, to shift our focuses even if we, we still you know have circle practice and it's a big part of our work but to focus on you know, Youth Participatory Action Research that we're helping um, young people to do things in their communities that they care about and make change. Um, Now we have something called the Meta, which is our drop-in space for ages 14 to 19. And we have youth dropping in. And this has been like something that young people have wanted for years, right? It's like people come to hang out in our spaces and we kind of didn't have the space to facilitate, just like hanging out. Um, And now we have that. And so it's so exciting to see the shifts of where we've been and where we're going.
2: What was really interesting for me to see about the work that Palante had done in the Holyoke schools were things like a racial audit mm. of the Holyoke Public School System, going through the different rooms and classrooms and curriculums, and breaking it all down into how and who is represented in the school. Can you talk a little bit about the idea of racial audits?
3: Yeah. Oh my goodness, this is my jam. Like this is. The- <laughs> This is the big part. People don't usually
2: love audits, but this is your jam.
3: Well, so this is really. um, I can say that a lot of the reason why I do this work now continuously is because of what that racism audit had the impact that it had on me as an individual. Yeah. Um. There's a visual, a video. I know that you said that you saw the videos. Um. There's a video that I'm in. And I talk about how we took down a sign that said no Hangeo" in front of the school and the sign was in Spanish and it was only in Spanish and it was improper Spanish. And it's in slang. um, No Hangeo," And it wasn't in English, Um, which means
2: no loitering or trying to mean no loitering. (laughs) but Only in Spanish. Only in Spanish.
3: Right. So then you ask yourself that question. Who's this geared towards? Who is who's being targeted by this? Um, And in our racism audit, we saw such different things like that, like the representations of slavery um, was the only way that you would see a person of color in in the hallways. And so we worked to change that. And I just love the um, the how do I say it? Like the there were so many different parts of that project that brought such an impact to Holyoke High School. Um, We made a hidden legends wall, and so before there was like a list of, like uh, pictures of successful graduates and they were all white, predominantly white. And so it's like, what does that say to the community that goes there, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. young people that go there? Um, So it felt so awesome to transform that, to put familiar faces in front of young people, like these are people that you've met in your community that have made such impacts. Um, yeah the racism audit, audit was awesome and it was a it, it's an example of our youth participatory action research right it was like an opportunity for young people to understand the actual issue at hand like this is the research behind it this is how many representations of you there are here um, helping them to understand that see the injustice right understand what's happening before taking that action and so it's to see that follow through I fell in love with it I fell in love with my work
2: we're speaking with Caitlin Cruz, who is an alumna and a staff member now of Palante, Transformative Justice, based in Holyoke. This
1: seems. We. I had a chance earlier in the season to talk with some students who are coming to the end of their term of at, at the ethnic study in the ethnic studies program, mm-hmm. but Palante seems to follow a very parallel trajectory. Can you talk about how those two programs work together?
3: Um, So in the past, we fought for similar things. I know that um, when the ethnic studies was having some trouble, um, we partnered with them and we were advocating for them and their um, programs within the schools and their leadership and Um, we really both come together for a social justice point to teach young people about who they are and and the things that are relevant to their lives. Um, Something I focused on in the last few days is like history is really at the hands of whoever decides to tell it, right? And so it's like often in schools, um, and in, in different places in our life, we tend to hear like a white man's version of what history is. And so ethnic studies is a way to tie in that information to young people, like here's a representation of you and your people. And I think that our program really strives to do that as well. We, we want young people to feel informed about what's happening in their lives. And we do that through programming as well. Um, so currently I'm running something called Cuéntame that talks about um, history and culture of young people. Um, and just yesterday I was talking to young people about my grandmother, Lita, shout out to her, and, <laughs> and her journey through coming to Holyoke and these things that I get to share with young people that might not seem relevant to them. But then when you tie it into like, how did your ancestors come here? How did you end up in Massachusetts? Like these little things play a huge part in your life.
1: It's like, quick quiz, like, there were a lot of ships involved.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Mine only had one ship involved. It was in the early part of the 20th century. Yeah. All right. Caitlin Cruz, who is with Palante, Transformative Justice. Um, Let's circle back to the circle practice, this Mm -hmm. indigenous circle practice, which to me is really fascinating. And is indigenous led? and guided within your program. But if people have never heard of this before, tell us a little bit about what it is and how it works.
3: Yeah, so we learn. um, It's really important to us to keep it sacred and to really honor the practice and its roots. Um, And so we learn from a teacher, Saira Pinto, um, who continuously teaches us about circle practice, right? Because there's not this like endpoint of learning about it. It's like there's always this continued point. Um, And really what circle practice is, is, it's a way to facilitate restorative justice. And so we're a transformative justice organization, right? But we can't have restorative. Justice without transformative justice and vice versa. And so really it's like circle practice can be used to have conversations um, leading to healing, celebration. We use circle for celebration, um, processing grief. It's really a pro- grief. I apologize. Um, it's really a way to process things. Um, and it's
2: literally in a circle, right? Yeah, like, in a around, circle.
3: Yeah. And we use a talking piece and we pass it to the left because that's the um, side closest to your heart. And we use a centerpiece and we really try to honor the indigenous practices that go with it.
2: yeah I think what else is interesting about your program is we mentioned before that it kind of grew out of and you were part of its uh, origins in the Holyoke Public Schools doing a racism audit of Holyoke Public Schools but now what you have to offer is offered to the broader community. So like if you are part of an organization that feels like it needs a racism audit or having a conference with some of your leaders and student leaders, that's all available to the public now, right?
3: Yeah, so we're developing currently, we're um, developing different training programs, right? So we want to make sure that we um, get, to the most integral part of our organization that we, um, make sure that we're super aligned and super educated ourselves on the things that we would train on. And so we do trainings around restorative justice, um, but we're launching a official program a little bit later from further down the line, but we offer like different services now. And so something that we can talk about is mindful rage, right? It's a youth led anger management course, and it's a series. And instead of thinking of like traditional anger management, it's like, um, reimagining that and redirecting anger and it's like young people are angry for valid reasons like there's things happening in their communities that are important to them and so we're thinking of um you know we do this with Lordian rage in mind which is anger that motivates us to take action and to address the root causes of injustices um and we do this and we use circle practice art storytelling Um, we encourage youth to be vulnerable in circle and solidarity with one another et cetera. so that's a really exciting part of our work something that we offer that's new and that's offered to youth that are ages 12 to 25.
1: Uh, I love the idea that you have it's not an idea the the practice that you use of adult allies especially with youth who are involved in this transformative justice and you have a community board that's working with like those adults to try and engender better ways of us bridging that generational gap can you talk about how that generational gap is actually a part of this this restorative
3: prox restorative and transformative process yeah so we oh i love that you have all the information (laughs) (laughs) we did a little bit of research
2: before you came
3: on um and so we um, have a board of directors that's involved um in making the decisions that need to be made our 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 process of like making decisions is very different in our organization and so it goes through various different groups. We used to have a community advisory board as we transferred to being our own nonprofit. We have a board of directors and these people are really informed on what's happening in our community, care about our young people. Um, And so it's been so awesome to have a community of people that consider themselves allies to our program Um, and ongoing and, and in different positions of power in the city. Um, and then you said adult allies, and so it makes me think of also how we as staff, as alumni of the program, um, how we empower or highlight the inherent power of our young people, um, we're just continuously supporting them and so I have young people that are assigned to me my coworkers do as well and we just do check-ins with them um and I, I think that's a big part to highlight of their experience with Balante. like we're a part of their experience but it's also because we got to experience that with someone else right someone was my adult ally um so that's been so awesome
2: it's a really remarkable program, and I'm excited to continue to follow all the exciting things that you're doing. And if you're interested in finding out more about Palante, you can visit their website that has, I think, one of the coolest looking sort of it mission does. statements. Ooh. It looks like a, a a fun mural version of what they're all about. By it going looks to, like a map. Yeah, yeah. A, a map and a mural. We at,
3: put so much effort into our strategic planning, so I'm glad you enjoyed it. It looks
2: gorgeous. <laughs> it's fun to just look at, and it's the cityscape of Holyoke. It's at yeah. PalanteHolyoke.org. Caitlin Cruz, who's not only on the staff, but an alumna of the Palante program. Thank you so much for joining us.
3: Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate
1: it. No problem. On the way, a 10,000-foot view of the mayoral candidates in the seven contested races of Western Mass with NEPM's Adam Frenier. But first, an odd variety of obscurities on display at the Berkshire Museum with curator Jesse Kowalski. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. Oh, a cursed painting.
2: You have a cursed painting and decided to hang it in the museum?
0: Yes. Yeah. Well, when it was given to us, we were told that it was a cursed painting. The woman who gave it to us, uh, she died uh, two weeks after she donated it to us. So it was already cursed, she gave it to you, and then she died? Yeah, she died in an auto
2: accident. What does this cursed painting allegedly do to wherever it... Like, am I going to get cursed if I look at it? I don't think so. I'm giving it the evil eye. (laughs) We are at the Berkshire Museum in Pittsfield. Jesse Kowalski, I am the chief curator. This exhibit that is up through January? Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's called One of a Kind Wonders. Tell us about this exhibit.
0: Yeah, well, the exhibit really originated shortly after I started working here in April. And I just came across so many weird things, kind of uh, things that didn't really fit with other objects, things that people ordinarily don't see on view. Um, and I thought it might be neat for visitors to see some of these things like uh, in a lighthearted kind of circus-themed exhibition.
2: All the imagery has like circus poster feel to it.
1: There's an armadillo basket. In case you were looking for what an example of the things here, it's lined, it's very well constructed, but also not a thing I would ever think would be made somehow.
2: The shell of an armadillo repurposed into... A basket:
0: yep. Yeah, and there's the half squirrel here. It's actually a science specimen, so it's half squirrel then half squirrel skeleton. Squirrel Very bizarre.:
2: It is bizarre and very skillfully done, how they managed to get the exposed skeleton of the squirrel on one side look so skeletony <laughs> while the other side looks so squirrely. It's yeah. like two-face from Gotham City. Yeah. Hey.
0: Where's my coins? And right here we've got a Mercury Arc Rectifier. Uh, so these are from the early 1900s. And so these were kind of the early electrical things that you could hook, hook items up to. So it was originally marketed towards Housewives so that they could start uh, their cars with electricity. So... Uh, Instead of cranking them? Yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, electric cars in the early 1900s. Uh, you can actually see at the bottom there, there's the Mercury that's uh, reflecting on the wall. And so this thing looks like a giant
2: glass tube with two smaller glass tubes coming out of it, and then what looked like four thermometers, appropriately enough, for the mercury.
0: And how would it work? Well, you get an electric charge going in there, then the mercury just spins around rapidly and, and creates this uh, electrical charge that it uh, puts out.
2: That's incredible. It's really weird.
1: That's fascinating. Yeah,
2: as tempting as it might be to play with the mercury, don't, don't do, do it. That. Like <laughs> my parents did in school when <laughs> I, they wonder why I am the way that I am. What are some of the other one-of-a-kind wonders here at the Berkshire Museum? Well, Chief Curator be- Jesse.
0: Sunglasses from
2: 1776 here. are oh. super cool, but with the beautiful <laughs> blue lenses. It looks like John Lennon might have worn yeah. them. They're that kind of style, almost. You know.
0: Yeah, we've got this uh, Victorian skirt lifter, which I thought was kind of uh, uh, Inappropriate. Uh, an item that no. uh, someone might use to to do something inappropriate. <laughs> right, but it was actually used by uh, women in the Victorian age to lift their skirts when they're crossing over a muddy uh, oh, cool. part of the road or whatever.
1: Yeah, to get up uh, stairs and things yeah. so that you didn't have to actually touch your skirt and maybe get oils and things on it.
2: I love that the, the skirt lifter is shaped like a hand (laughs) on a chain. It's like a tiny little hand. It's like a Donald Trump hand. Look at those hands. Are they small hands?
1: A time lamp.
2: If you rub that, do you yeah. get three wishes?
0: No, no, no. Um, actually, the oil in the lamp is supposed to go down at a certain time so that you'll see exactly what time it is uh, according to where the word level of the oil is on the lamp. Does it work as a functioning clock? I don't think it would work so well.
1: Yes, your note says that, though a clever novelty, they were unreliable as the <laughs> level of fuel consumption varied with the different fuels
2: used. Yeah. I was <laughs> late because my time-indicating oil lamp was uh, not correctly so maybe
0: you oiled.
1: Should, you weren't using the right oil. You should have, like, paid attention to those instructions. This is why you read the
0: directions. Um, so we've got this ostrich skeleton here. and This is one of the original items donated to the museum by the founder, Zenus Crane. So this has been here 120 years.
2: Tell us some more of your favorite one-of-a-kind wonders well, let's
0: here. let's see. There is the holy water sprinkler. Oh, my word. It this, looks uh, like, like a weapon. Yeah, it is. Is it? Oh. But it's called a holy water sprinkler? Yeah. So, yeah, it was used among the English in the 16th and 17th centuries. So the spikes, uh, when you would hit someone with the spikes, blood would come out of the spikes and so they called it a holy water sprinkler.
1: That, That's I don't think is... Uh, o oh Lord, bless this thy hand grenade, that with it thou mayst blow thine enemies to tiny bits in thy mercy. That's not the holy
2: water
0: that I'm familiar no. with. That's not the sprinkler. <laughs>
1: than
0: I was expecting it to be. Yeah. Here's, the, here's one thing that we found uh, just a few months ago in the collection. It's a sword uh, with a pistol on the uh, base of the sword here. <gasps> so and it's... it fires one shot and the engraving on there shows that it's from Vatican City. All of these wonderful Vatican
2: City <laughs> holy weapons. And yeah. if they ever say, don't bring a gun to a knife fight, Bring both.
0: Yeah. Going through your collection
1: like this, how often do you encounter things that were not necessarily,
0: not that they weren't on the books, but that people haven't encountered in like decades? Yeah, I mean, our collection is, uh, it's just packed down there. And there's so many of these things. It's just, you come across, you know, shelf after shelf of uh, bizarre items. Like um, in a case over there, we've got some dolls set up. And we actually have 200 of those dolls in, in storage, but we only have about 20 on display.
2: Did you pick the creepiest dolls to put out?
0: We sure did. <laughs>
2: <laughs> if it's going to be surrounded by s- skeletons and uh, holy water sprinklers that are actually weapons and swords that have guns attached to them, yep, got to get the creepiest dolls you got. See, yep. see. Megan?
3: Baby dolls kill. Don't provoke us or we will.
2: Jesse Kowalski, relatively new to the Berkshire yep. Museum but as we were walking up the hallway to this uh, one-of-a-kind wonders exhibit that's here now through January, repainting the hallway because you didn't like that that color. (laughs) It seems like you've got a vision for this museum. Tell us a little bit about the vision that you're bringing to this
0: Place. yeah well the Berkshire Museum's been here 120 years and I've heard from a lot of people who grew up here in Pittsfield and the Berkshires and they really treasure this place as a community museum and so we're trying to keep that uh, that feeling going while doing some modernizing uh, like you know insulating the walls uh, repainting uh, fixing some of the doors and things like that uh, but really keeping the essence of the Berkshire Museum that people have, have come to love
1: you have a screw here on display, but it has to do with
0: cheese. Please explain. (laughs) Well, this is the uh, famous uh, Cheshire cheese wheel. Well, the Cheshire cheese press, this is the Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so this block of cheese went to the White House for, it was on display there for about two years until uh, some other union uh, decided to make the world's largest loaf of bread, which replaced it uh, at the White House. But yeah, we've got the uh, original screw from the cheese press here. What do you see over there, Tony Dunn?
2: As uh, as a devotee of martial arts films and things, there's a piece of, uh, there's a piece of China. What do we got? A brick from the Great Wall of China.
0: Yeah, well, you know, Uh, The 1800s were a different time, I suppose. (laughs) (laughs) So we do have some uh, odd items. Uh, So we do have a brick here from the Great Wall of China, uh, a tile from the Taj Mahal. I feel
1: like it's okay to take the brick from the Great Wall of China because it is kind of the original big dig.
0: Leave
2: the Taj Mahal alone.
0: Yeah. Uh, we've got a cannonball here from Waterloo. Not the Abba song. <laughs> yeah. No. Um, some uh, lava here from Mount Vesuvius that was uh, reshaped into coins. Piece of the Rock of Gibraltar there. And then up top there is a rock that the Shakers in Tiringham used uh, as part of a uh, ceremony to seal the devil into the ground.
2: What year was that? And when is that
0: seal going to break? Oh, boy. Let's see. Yeah. to ask these Yeah, right? Yeah, it was in the mid-1800s. Yeah, and it's written on the rock exactly what happened. The uh, the Shakers in Tiringham used that rock. We got to look more into that story.
2: What the people of Tiringham, Massachusetts, made them believe that the devil was there, that they had to seal him into the ground, seems like a movie that wants to be made.
1: And is that part of why the gardens in Tiringham are so large and strange?
0: <laughs> well, according to this book, The Ghosts of Old Berkshire, um, it actually happened in uh, Pittsfield. Is where they put the devil in the ground, but they were from Taringham. I don't them. know, it's it's they unclear. They
1: exported their, their devil and put <laughs> it here.
0: Not in my backyard, devil.
1: <laughs> two narwhal horns?
0: Yep, two Ooh, narwhals. Yeah. the unicorns of the sea. Indeed. Thanks, Mr. Narwhal. This is fun. So we've got a couple presidential items. This is a chair uh, that George Washington supposedly sat in. Uh, we know this because there's a plaque on the bottom that says George Washington sat here. He came with <laughs> plaques in his back
2: pocket. So Any time he sat or slept anywhere, he would just yeah. pop, slap them on there like, a, like a, some chew, chewing gum.
0: <laughs> yeah, and in this case over here, we've got a piece of the pillowcase that uh, Abraham Lincoln uh, uh, died on after oh. he was shot. Yeah. So I I imagine someone uh, just went around and cut pieces of the sheets and the pillowcase and sold them because we have a tiny little square here.
2: How can you verify that these are actual artifacts from from that time?
0: Well, typically, uh, these are items that were given to us um, in the 1800s or early 1900s, and they've got some kind of uh, provenance or uh, documentation backing up where they came from. Oh, and this this is a wheel spoke from uh, the first uh, Secret Service agent uh, who died in the line of duty. Died in Pittsfield uh, when uh, a trolley hit their uh, carriage and uh, killed the uh, Secret Serviceman. But here's a spoke from the wheel of that carriage
2: that killed the Secret Serviceman when he was trying to protect Theodore Uh, Roosevelt.
0: Yep. So uh, the next section really deals with uh, these paintings. uh, show little kids kind of with adult faces
2: oh yeah Um, so just extra creepy
0: yeah like uh this one reminds me a little of John Belushi here (laughs) (laughs) now
2: you're
1: gonna put me right back in the joint
2: it's a cute little kid in a pink little outfit and also
0: John Belushi's face
1: that kid knows things yeah they're not gonna catch us
4: we're on a mission from God
0: yeah here we've got a conjoined uh, shark embryo here two sharks that are uh conjoined. In a jar, we've got uh, just a mollusk here in a jar and a cotton plant. Just uh, a few of the odd items we have stored in jars. So does somebody just say like, hey, I've got some conjoined sharks in a jar. Do you want it, Berkshire Museum? Or like, how does this happen? Typically, it's a collector or, a, or an institution. Uh-huh. Uh-huh.
1: So if you have a, a taxidermied collection of things, they can contact you and be like, hey, maybe... <laughs> Maybe you would
2: like this albino woodchuck that we had had taxidermed, which is actually here.
0: Yeah, this great albino woodchuck. I actually found this newspaper article from, I think, 1939, in which uh, two men found the woodchuck on the property, brought it to the Berkshire Museum, and uh, this was it.
1: Is this a thing that you're thinking about doing more often with museums, since every collection's got a bunch of errata?
0: Yeah, I, you know, it was the fall, I figured, you know, uh, things were going on around the world, people need a little lighthearted fun, so I thought we'd uh, do a show like this.
2: Jesse Kowalski, who's the curator here at the Berkshire Museum, what's next? What's some more exciting stuff happening for the museums in the next weeks and months ahead.
0: Well, we've got the Festival of Trees coming back after a few years off. Singer-songwriter Paul Williams, who did uh, Rainbow Connection, a lot of the Carpenter's hits will be here for the kickoff.
2: one of the best songwriters of all time, yeah. huge yeah. fan. I think he's also the head of the uh, artist rights
0: agency, yeah. a- ASCAP as well. Uh-huh. So, yeah. yeah, and then in the spring, we're doing a show on illuminated manuscripts oh. uh, from the 13th to 18th centuries, which will be a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Why, why? There are there so many?
2: That Paul Williams event is happening on November 17th, and you can find out more information on it and other things going on at BerkshireMuseums.org. But now that that circus sideshow fun is out of the way, on to another circus, the elections.
1: A Cliff Notes quick recap of all the folks running for mayoral seats with NEPM's Adam Frenier when we come back.
2: You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. Welcome back to the Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. And I'm Khalees Smith. And we are joined by the NEPM News Department's Adam Frenier, who has been diligently along with the rest of the NEPM News Department following the elections that are today. Vote today. Vote
1: today, y'all.
2: We're going to have live election coverage when the polls close at 8 o'clock till 10 o'clock, where we'll be learning about all the races, breaking down all the races and giving you all the results as they come in. And one of the things we've been trying to do here on The Fabulous 413 is talk to all the candidates running for mayor in the seven contested races in the four counties of Western Mass. We
1: got halfway through.
2: We got halfway through.
1: Not for lack of trying.
2: Not, yeah, we asked all of them to we participate, did. and some of them, for one reason or another, didn't didn't uh, take us up on that offer. So Adam Frenier, what we'd like you to do is help us break down first the races that we didn't get any of the, either of the candidates for, and then a couple of the outliers who we had their opponents on. So let's start with Agawam, Adam.
5: Let's do it, Monty. All right. <laughs> so in Agawam, there's an open seat uh, because Mayor Bill Sapelli decided to retire, and you have somebody who used to be mayor, Chris Johnson, who's Running, he finished first in the preliminary election, uh, and he's taking on the longtime city councilor Cecilia Calabrese. Uh, both have raised about the same amount of money, give or take. Uh, it was Johnson who finished ahead of Calabrese in the preliminary. Aguam, very oddly, and they're trying to change this. Held their preliminary just a couple of weeks ago, in the middle of October, and turnout was well abysmal. It was just about 10 percent. That was it, and. So hard to glean anything out in that race. Um, it'll be a two-year term at least for now, and uh, that—that's how things shape up in Agawam. Is uh, both candidates have been uh, pretty vigorous, but it's been a respectful campaign. Two household names in Agawam politics, and you know both uh, talking about their different experiences, whether it's Calabrese on the city council or Chris Johnson, who did this job way back when. Johnson's trying to be the Grover Cleveland of Agawam. Ha! Wow, that's a that's going way back for a reference. Uh, yeah, I guess you could say that. Not- you know, he held the job for many years, uh, about twenty years ago, I believe it was. And uh, he is trying to stage a comeback. He too, he's on the city council right now as its president, and he's been involved in, in city politics uh, despite the fact that he hasn't been mayor for a while. But uh, he's looking to, uh, to to stage a comeback. That's for sure.
2: Are there hot button issues in Agawam that are rising to the top between the candidates? Um, there, there's.
5: They really have run on their record in that race, you know, their their experiences. You know, I think one issue that's going to come up in Aguam is whether or not to build a new high school and how to go about doing that in a fiscally responsible way. But, you know, there's not a whole lot, uh, ideologically speaking, separating these two.
2: Well, Adam Frenier from the NEPM News Department, you want to tell us a little bit about another race that we didn't get any of the candidates on for for Mayor Westfield.
1: Might be a little close to your heart.
5: Well, since I'm sitting here right now in Westfield, yes, I guess you can say that. And um, it is a been a pretty quiet election season around here. You have uh, one-term incumbent Michael McCabe. Westfield's on a two-year cycle, so he ran just two years ago and beat uh, a well-known state representative and state senator And Don Hummison. Uh, McCabe is a former ranking officer in the Westfield Police Department. He's being challenged by city councilor Kristen Mello and, uh, it's been a very quiet campaign and on a lot of fronts, you know, there hasn't been a whole lot whole lot of controversy or much else uh, going on with it. McCabe's uh, fundraised steadily. Mello has neither raised nor spent any money, according to the latest state campaign data and the, uh, Again, it's been kind of a quiet election season as far as that particular race goes here in Westfield.
1: How does that even work? You didn't spend any money on your campaign. That's kind of fascinating.
5: Are they
2: running what you feel is a legitimate campaign, or are they
5: campaigning at all is what I mean by that? Right. I mean, you see some lawn signs and sometimes uh, you know down on certain intersections, people holding signs. I believe there's been a candidate's form, but uh, certainly not as vigorous as some of the other ones that we have going on in our area.
2: Okay. And what about Westfield as far as hot-button issues go? Anything rising to the top there that differentiates these candidates or the voter and the electorate of Westfield?
5: Well, I'll be honest with you, Monty. This is one that it's been so quiet I haven't paid a whole heck of a lot of attention to. (laughs) You know, public safety certainly is always one. and, And... you know, Westfield's a place where people care about potholes getting filled and Department of Public Works issues, of course, water. There's been PFAS issues before, you know, a lot of the same stuff that voters in a lot of communities uh, care for. But again, you know, given how um, how quiet this particular race has been, there really hasn't been a, a real vigorous discussion of the issues.
1: I feel like as a Westfield resident, that's saying a lot.
5: Well... It's certainly saying a lot as one who also reports on politics a good deal of the time, too, that, you know, I've noticed just how quiet it's been. But uh, certainly not. It reminds me a lot of what's going on in North Adams, where it's just, you know, there there are two people on the ballot. You know, the incumbent looks like, you know, probably the favorite in the race. You never know in an election. But, you know, again, there just has not been a whole lot of activity. Fair enough.
2: One of the races that we got one of the candidates for the challenger. We only got one incumbent, actually, in all of our attempts to come on. Uh, But the incumbent mayor of Chicopee, John View, is running against Delmarina Lopez, who was our guest on Monday's show. Give us a breakdown of your assessment of the John View campaign in Chicopee. Adam Frenier from the NEPM News Department.
5: Well, John Views did speak with our Nirvani Williams for a story she did recently, and he really leaned heavy on his experience. A 16-year city councilor, he's looking for his third two-year term as chief executive of uh, Western Massachusetts' second-largest community. And he talked about things like uh, public safety in terms of pedestrian safety and how he's worked hard to try to improve that. And you know, he says the city's doing well financially. There's a you know a rainy day fund that uh, is is well stocked and. You know, he also talked, too, about the changing population of Chicopee, with the Latino population having tripled since 2000. You know, he said he had to make some changes to how he governs, and he he made sure he brought in somebody who can speak Spanish and can and can help reach out to people who maybe don't speak English or don't speak English well uh, to help them, to, to make sure that they're getting what they need when they come to City Hall or when they call his office. Um, you know, he again, very much so, given his political experience running on his record and um, you know, one interesting thing about this race, however, though, is uh, John View has slightly been outraised uh, in terms of fight and terms of campaign finance. Del Marina Lopez has raised about twenty-five hundred to three thousand dollars more than him this cycle, and View has spent about five thousand dollars more than his opponent. So that was an interesting thing, I think, that uh, you know you have somebody that's so well entrenched in City Hall, but. You know, he's, uh, he's been pretty much in an even race as far as uh, financing goes for his campaign.
1: That is interesting.
2: There's an interesting take that was in the Montague Reporter that maybe we'll talk a little bit more about tonight mm-hmm. when we go live at the, uh, as the election, as the polls close, we'll be live between 8 and 10 right here on 88.5. But the incumbent mayor of Greenfield uh, versus her challenger, Ginny DeSorger, and how many people donated to the disorder campaign and from what aspects of the community, as opposed to, say, the business community for Roxanne Wiedegard. Breaking down the economics of a a race always makes it really interesting. And there is an excellent voter guide, I'll say, at NEPM.org that has a lot of the races um, laid out there. And then you can look at their campaign finance filings um, alongside the different names of the candidates. Uh, Do you think we should hear the clip from Del Marino Lopez, Khalees? now since we're talking about Chicopee. All right, so uh, we've kind of created a Cliff Notes version of all of the people that we have talked to um, as we talk with NEPM's Adam Frenier about the different folks running for mayor in the four counties of Western Mass. So here's a clip from earlier this week with Chicopee mayoral candidate Del Marino Lopez. You're running against the incumbent mayor of Chicopee, John View, who's been mayor since 2020. Let's start off with the basics. Why do you want to be the mayor?
6: So I've been on the city council for the past two years, and I'm not a career politician by any means. I'm an attorney. I have my own consultancy firm. There's no political gain in this for me. This is about my community. And during my time on the council, I witnessed firsthand how badly we needed representation that was A, real leadership, and B, cared about the residents first. Um, You know, the incumbent mayor was a city councilor for 16 years and has now been the mayor for the past four years and not much has gotten done in the last 20 years. And that's definition career politician, right? Like Mm -hmm. we need some change. We need someone who doesn't have skin in the game in that way. You know, when you've been on with your buddies for 20 years, you get kind of stagnant and you get too comfortable. And it's not about the people anymore. It's not about the residents. We've had numerous issues on the council where residents have been unhappy with zoning proposals, where they've been unhappy with or ordinances or how, you know, certain departments are are doing their work. And I'm thankful for all the work that the city employees do. But we absolutely need a leader who is going to take the rein on things. And you have to be transparent and people should know where their dollars are being spent. You know, the current administration has put millions and millions and millions in like our stabilization fund. And that doesn't make any sense. The money that comes in from the taxpayers is not for us to have it sit in a bank. We're not a bank. We should have some stabilization fund, sure, but not over $20 million. That's ridiculous. We should be using that money to fix our roads. We should be using our money to pay our police officers. You know, we should be using that money to pay our teachers and our paras, our police officers. We don't have enough. And we don't have enough because we can't attract any new talent because we're the lowest paying in the area. And when you compare us to the next lowest paying, a starting officer makes 26 percent less than the next lowest paying department in the area. How are we ever going to attract talent? And then when we do attract a few, they go through our academy and then they leave our department because they cannot sustain themselves. That's not how we should be running a city. And it starts at the top. A mayor has to take responsibility for that. And I think I can lead the city. I think I can do a much better job leading the city. And I think it's time for some new new blood.
1: Do you think that it's because he's been there for so long and is used to the general slow pace of government that things move so slowly and that being relatively new to the council and to the mayoral seat, if should you get it, that you're able to invigorate and perhaps speed up some of these processes.
6: Yeah, I think that's part of it. Sure. Like the my newness absolutely brings some speed and invigoration, but I think also it's it's personal, right? Like what I bring to the table is energy. I bring diligence to the table. This is who I am as a person. I've shown that on the council. I show that through my work and I'm like ready to serve, ready to lead, right at right at the get, right? And so the incumbent mayor, it's not personal to me, but it's just, it's personal to the city. You may be an okay person as a person, but you're not a good leader, and it's time to let an actual leader lead the city.
2: Is Chicopee mayoral candidate, Councilor Delmarina Lopez, who's running for mayor of Chicopee today. We did invite the incumbent mayor, John View, onto the show. He declined, but did speak with Nirvani Williams from the NEPM News Department, and you can listen to that on our website, NEPM.org. There's another big election in the city where we are right now, the city of Springfield. We had one of the candidates on, the incumbent mayor declined. We will get NEPM News Department any uh Adam Frenier's take on <laughs> Dominic Sarno coming up in just a little bit. You're listening to the Fabulous
1: 413 on 885 NEPM. Got a phone. Welcome back to the Fabulous Four and Three. I'm Monty
2: Belmonte. And I'm Kalee Smith. And we're joined by NEPM News Department's Adam Frenier, who's helping us break down the mayoral races this election day. We did get an opportunity to speak with Springfield mayoral challenger, Councillor Justin Hurst. But, Adam Frenier, give us your take on the incumbent, Mayor Dominic Sarno, and some of the recent drama that has been surrounding (laughs) this
5: particular campaign. I have no idea what you're talking about. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Well, this had been a pretty routine campaign, in my estimation at least, uh, since the preliminary up until about last Wednesday when the Republican newspaper first reported uh, that there were allegations that a member of Justin Hearst's campaign staff was paying voters uh, during the early voting period. And uh, there was some video out there, and the the city solicitor in Springfield alleges that these folks are being dropped off uh, by either the Hearst campaign or Hearst himself going in voting sometimes asking folks who are working at the uh, polling place, you know, where's my $10 or where do I get paid? And then there's been surveillance video, which shows people walking down the stairs and I viewed it uh, picking up money and then jumping into an SUV, apparently driven by Hearst. And obviously this uh, amped things up in this campaign quite a bit. You know, the, the mayor has come out and said he's upset in a statement. And Justin Hearst last Thursday in a press conference in his driveway at his house was adamant that this was a political setup that uh, the mayor and some municipal fo- municipal employees are out to get him. That you know the mayor was running scared at this point and he had to result to it or had to resort to a tactic like this. And um, you know that's that's up to the voters to decide. It, it appears that it may be under investigation. We haven't really had any confirmation of that. The city has asked uh, the DA's office to look into it. And you know it, it took again what was a pretty routine campaign and it turned it right on its head. Springfield is where you'll be covering tonight, right, Adam Franninger? Yeah, I'm going to start at Dominic Sarno's headquarters, and we'll uh, we'll move on from there. That's where I will be this evening, and uh, it's going to be very interesting to see uh, what does happen. You know, Dominic Sarno has run a a campaign where he hasn't really gone negative against Justin Hurst, or even if you go back to the preliminary election, uh, any of those candidates. He's really uh, run hard on his record and he's the longest-serving mayor in Springfield, 16 years, and, of course, he wants to keep his job so much so that out of his campaign account, he has spent a staggering half million dollars, a little more than that, while also raising more than $250,000, so he has not been afraid to unleash his bankroll. A lot of it's been on television ads and radio ads and, and the like, and while He maybe hasn't been doing interviews, and we're not the only ones, I can tell you that, and and he's only done one debate. He's also kept himself away from controversy, and he really hasn't said much other than a two-line statement about the whole vote-buying controversy. So he's stuck to his message. He's stuck to his record, and he's been free of controversy in this race and, and has not gone negative. You know, Justin Hurst has taken some shots at him, including during that situation last week, but... You know, uh, Sarno has not responded. He's not come back with uh, a counterpunch, if you will. And, you know, perhaps that's his strategy is to just try to stay out of trouble, stick to the record and, and let the voters decide. And if you've had the job for 16 years, that strategy obviously has worked.
2: NEPM's Adam Frenier, who's going to be covering that election in Springfield tonight. We're going to go live on election night between 8 and 10 and bring you those results and hopefully be hearing from the winners of these races. Thanks so much for giving us this breakdown. We're going to play a little clip uh, right now from Dominic Sarno's challenger, the aforementioned councillor, Justin Hurst. You are a member of the city council. You've been president of the city council. Was there an aha moment where you said city council is not where I want to stay. I want to be
4: the mayor. And and why? When I would witness so many people being left out, you know, there were a number of decisions that were being made at the executive uh, level and in the executive office that I, you know, I finally was like, enough is enough. Just most recently, uh, you know, we had an opportunity uh, to give $40 million in Eversource money uh, that they were, uh, that they had owed to the city uh in in taxes and we could have put that money towards tax relief we know that our uh, taxes here in the city of springfield have gone up eight out of the last eight straight years and we're poised to go up nine out of the last nine straight years and you know there were only a couple counselors who were like hey we've got this 40 million dollars we received it as a result of a tax settlement from eversource our folks need relief and there are many people that are living on fixed incomes who are struggling Why can't we use this money towards that relief? And there was never a real desire from the administration to do so. And so at that point in time, well, what happened to that money first? So that money went into the rainy day fund. Uh-huh. Uh, it went into the uh-huh. rainy day fund, um, you know, in preparation for, I guess, when it's raining. But you talk to a lot of residents here in the city of Springfield and it's raining for them right now. And so, yes, uh, it's great that their property values are going up. But if you're not selling, you can't necessarily realize the, the, the value in uh, your homes increasing. And so what they're left with is paying taxes that have gone up year after year after year and they need relief.
1: During your tenure on city council, do you feel like there's been a certain level of animosity between the folks on city council and what they're trying to bring to the city and the executive branch, the mayor's office, and what they're trying to bring to the city?
2: As evidenced by, you were
4: not the only city councilor who ran for mayor. I think it was clear that folks that folks felt that the residents of Springfield needed change. You know, after you are in office for 16 years, your circle becomes smaller and smaller and smaller. And you stop uh, to really operate on behalf of the individuals who got you elected. And you're more focused on appeasing uh, those individuals who uh, are giving you campaign donations or whose pockets you're padding. And so, uh, you know, it was... Um, it was just time. It was time uh, that there, there were um, you said one example on the city council or one time, one aha moment. Is that what you said? That's what, he That's what I that, said. That, yeah. One aha <laughs> moment. Um, you know, I don't know if there was an aha moment, uh, but I think it was clear that uh, there were too many people that were being left out. And so we needed to challenge leadership, uh, win or lose. Uh, you know, the hope is that you'll shine a light on those individuals that have been left out and haven't been benefiting from government over th- such a long period. That is the challenger for mayor of Springfield City Councilor Justin
2: Hurst. NEPM's Adam Frenier, one of the other races that we got both of the candidates on for is John Kroll, the former city councilor in Pittsfield, and Peter Marchetti, city council president in Pittsfield, your take on the Pittsfield mayoral election.
5: And
1: all the scandals there. Yeah.
5: I was going to say, it's it's almost like uh, Pittsfield said, take our take our mayoral candidates' personal issues, <laughs> threw that into the pot, and Springfield said, we'll see and raise you with a vote-buying scandal. It's a very, <laughs> if it was a poker game, it, it's just been a, a wild uh, situation in Pittsfield with John Kroll being accused of... Taking money from an animal rescue group that he was on the board for for a while to pay for some uh, personal debts, and then accepted a payment from the ex-husband of the of said group uh, to settle that uh, the money that was improperly taken, and then uh, just last week Peter Marchetti caught up in a sexual harassment lawsuit involving his day job at a Pittsfield bank where he was named as a co-defendant. So at the last debate, uh, the the Mud was flying at this one. They were both really going at each other, not about the issues, but about their own personal travails. And I'm very curious to see how this will affect the vote, the turnout and all of that, because, you know, there's been a lot more talk about what's happened away from the contest and a lot of the issues. And Uh, I will say, having spent a few years in Pittsfield, voters there are very active. You know, it's Mm -hmm. almost like a spectator sport. They love going to debates. They love showing up to the polls. They love being involved in campaigns. And talking to their city clerk, Michelle Benjamin, yesterday, she thought they could have up to 50% turnout for a mayoral. That would be incredible. That is impressive. And also sad. 50%. (laughs) They had about a solid F. Yeah, they had about 43% last year uh, with Mayor Linda Tire uh, staving off a a stiff challenge from Melissa Mazio. And if you look at those campaign finance reports we were talking about, this race between Kroll and Marchetti almost feels like an extension of that race, which also became a little nasty at times, involved even in some, some lawsuits afterwards involving defamation. But a lot of the people supporting Marchetti, including Mayor Tire herself, you know, are our are, are tire supporters, and a lot of the people that are supporting Kroll are people, including Mazio and others, who supported her. So it's almost felt like that division has continued in Pittsfield and are supporting Kroll, I should say. And it almost feels like that division in Pittsfield and that battle from four years ago is, is ongoing with two new candidates.
1: Speaking of ongoing battles.
5: Yeah.
2: NEPM's Adam Freniger. First of all, thank you for breaking all this down with us. We'll be checking in with you tonight after 8 o'clock when the polls close, as well as the rest of the NEPM News Department who will be spread across the four counties covering these races. Yesterday on the show, we read a statement from incumbent mayor of Greenfield, Roxanne Wiedegardner, who had taken umbrage with something that her challenger, Councillor Ginny DeSorger, had said when she was a guest on our show. And now... Ginny DeSorger has taken umbrage with the umbrage and has a statement. So this is how we will we will read as much of this as we can in the time we have left on the show this election day. Good luck if we us. don't finish it, tune in after eight o'clock and we will finish the rest of the statement from Councillor DeSorger. I will begin in Ginny DeSorger's voice. The mayor's assertion that I lack an understanding of municipal finance is false. As chair of the city's council, city council ways and means committee, I devote countless hours to the analysis of the city's budget. Other council members look to me for my expertise and knowledge of city finances. Further, I stand by my statement that the mayor exercised poor judgment in the choices she made to substantially cut the school's requested budget to just 3% while increasing her own executive department budget by 16%. The mayor's $1.5 million cut in the school budget would have resulted in larger classroom sizes and exodus of teachers to the other school systems and poorer quality education for our children. It was a to find the funds to fill that gap, I worked with other counselors to do just that. At no time was I calling into question the qualifications of the city's finance director. The statements I made about poor judgment were directed solely at the mayor and her decision to cut the $1.5 million from the Greenfield schools.
1: In regard to the suspension of overnight police coverage, the mayor's assertion that the city council voted to defund the police is an attempt to turn a measured budgetary decision made by the council into something else entirely. Um, Just as the mayor has had to make difficult decisions to balance the budget, so too do city council members have to assess each funding request
2: and we'll get more on that race after eight o'clock when the polls close thank you so much for listening to the fabulous 413 we'll see you tonight
1: yes for live coverage
3: that's all my friends I